Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, the Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock directed thriller North by Northwest. I am but mad north, northwest, when the wind is southerly. I know a hawk my hands off. The one minute of screen time per episode. Here's your host for Minute 14, Professor Robert G.G. Blake of Michael Myers Minute. Taking a shot. <laughs> Just leave that in. It was awkwardness. Page 19 of the shooting script. <clears throat> Page 19 of the shooting script. Changes dated 9-19-58. Scene 31 continued. North by Northwest, a spy film, but also not. A male melodrama, but also not. Wesley K. Wark writes in Spy Fiction, Spy Films, and Real Intelligence, quote, This generation of spy fiction writers found a solution to the dilemma of brutal and grinding struggle in the individual, male hero, with his capacity for regeneration and his ability to foil plots against the state. These plots were themselves depicted as dangerous forces that just might provide the dreaded momentum that would launch a society into irreversible decline or into slavery or subordination at the hands of stronger or more ruthless civilization, state, or race. What gave substance to early spy fiction's use of apparent realism was an historical framework consisting of shadowy social Darwinistic forces, conspiracies against order, individual heroism, and melodramatic resolution. History was violent and contained grand forces, but could be bent to human will and was subject to thrilling salvation. The reconstructed formula sought to plumb more deeply the character of the spy hero and the forces of history within and against which he operated. These authors rejected the social Darwinistic outlook of their predecessors and sought instead some new understanding of threats and dangers to civilization. In doing so, they steered spy fiction towards greater verisimilitude and left-wing politics. End quote. The plot to North by Northwest hinges on mistaken identity, as I have already mentioned, but also hinges on identity itself. Roger O. Thornhill, R-O-T, rot, at the center of his very name is an empty space, and as this plot progresses he is forced into the empty space that is George Kaplan, a false name, a red herring in an early Cold War spy game. But who is Roger Thornhill? Murray Pomerantz, Alfred Hitchcock's America. Quote, the America that Alfred Hitchcock knew as the 1940s became the 1950s was filled with energetic social climbers and dreamers, people convinced they inhabited a classless utopia where success and wealth could be theirs by entitlement. It was in every man's power to transform himself and his world in the society that was rapidly accommodating to the grand shifts of modernity and marshalling its economy for the gear up to war production and the rationalization of consumerism and advertising that burgeoned in the 1950s. Technical infrastructure was being developed, the interstate highway system and its road culture, for example. While the expansion of the cities into newly developed suburbs, the explosion of media with the growth of television, the social changes accompanying the redomestication of women, and the climate of pervasive fear occasioned by the Cold War, all produced tensions, frustrations, and desires hitherto unimagined in a culture that had been stable and agrarian. The population was shifting away from the farm toward the cities and suburbs in a trenchant mobility, both physical and social. Jettisoned as dead weight were the consistencies of Victorian morality. Marital strain, psychoanalysis, space travel, 
All of these were invoked or established by the late 1950s. End quote. Stanley Cavill, North by Northwest. Quote, the film is called North by Northwest. I assume that nobody will swear from that fact alone that we have here an allusion to Hamlet's line that he is but mad North-Northwest. Even considering that Hamlet's line occurs as the players are about to enter, and that North by Northwest is notable even within the oeuvre of a director pervaded by images and thoughts of the theater and of theatricality for its obsession with the idea of acting. And considering that both the play and the film contain plays within the play in both of which someone is killed, both being constructed to catch the conscience of the one for whose benefit they are put on, but there are plenty of further facts. The film opens with an ageless male identifying himself first of all as a son. He speaks of his efforts to keep the smell of liquor on his breath, that is, evidence of his grown-up pleasures, from the watchful nose of his mother. And he comes to the attention of his enemies because of an unresolved anxiety about getting a message to his mother, whereupon he is taken to a mansion in which his abductor has usurped another man's house and name, and has, it turns out, cast his own sister as his wife. The name posted at the front of the house is Townsend, and a town is a thing smaller than a city but larger than a village or a hamlet. The abductor orders the son killed by forcing liquid into him. It is perhaps part of the picture that the usurper is eager to get to his dinner guests, and that there is too much competitive or forced drinking of liquor. Nor again will anyone swear that it is significant that the abductor usurper's henchmen are a pair of men with funny, if any, names, and a single man who stands in a special relationship with the usurper, and has a kind of sibling rivalry with the young woman that his son, our hero, will become attracted to and repelled by. These are shadowy matters and it is too soon to speak of illusions or of any other very definite relation to a so-called source. End quote. Cary Grant and Roger Thornhill are both of a generation that saw World War, saw men, young and old, defined by a conflict far bigger than them. Now Grant plays Thornhill, and Thornhill must play Kaplan, but to what end? Of what import? What drives these men? Murray Pomerantz, an eye for Hitchcock. Quote, are we, after all, what we seem to be? At least since the Greeks sang of the visit of Amphitryon, the god who descended to walk hidden among men, and if only in the context of narrative we have been wondering this, with special urgency perhaps as we contemplate film, are we to be recognized, named, and judged by an audience that most circumspect and unyielding of entities? Or does our existence spring from within, from before? If we live like the Red King in others' dreams of us, in others' eyes, they can surely be wrong from time to time, as we can be wrong in thinking to recognize people who are not there. The history of confused identity has been plated with both the history of situational ambiguity and the history of the development of the technology of disguise, not to mention the history of identificatory photography. In capitalism, film has always resided in the age of capitalism. Identity is a form of property, both in its profession and in its confusion. Previously, in feudal society, identity was already a means of location and placement, literally a mise-en-scene, as though preparation for a film. And while the technology of disguise is sometimes objective and material, a suit waiting in a hotel room closet to be pressed, a hairbrush, a mask of shaving cream seen in the mirror of a railway station men's room, it is just as often stylistic and evanescent. A way of recounting a story, a choice of words, a careful circumlocution, a tone of voice, there are many ways to hide in life and on screen, on screen perhaps especially, as I hope to show by taking a somewhat circuitous but methodical route toward a vision of North by Northwest. Harold Garfinkel discusses a technique he calls anticipatory following, which is essentially learning by imitating. How to frame answers to potentially threatening questions we deduce by paying careful attention to the structure of the questions themselves. 
We take cues from others as to the behavior they expect, or the frame within which reasonable action can be set, and thus contrive how to be the person observers assume we naturally, automatically, simply, merely, and wholeheartedly are, and always have been. But which comes first, with anticipatory following, the gesture, or the cue for the gesture? We all do anticipatory following, particularly as young children, but often later in life as well. We all know how to simulate what we hope others will take us for, guessing quickly from their behavior toward us who we are and what it is that we are supposed to do in order to simulate ourselves correctly. For instance, I don't recall a single moment in my childhood when I was taken to see Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef at the Tivoli on James Street in Hamilton, Ontario, or else The Greatest Show on Earth, which I know I saw ten times on ten successive Saturdays in 1856, or The Man Who Knew Too Much, or Boy on a Dolphin, or His Majesty O'Keefe with the amazing performer Abram Sofower, or The Road to Bali. When anybody actually gave me the instructions, sit down in this plush chair, watch that sparkling screen, be quiet, listen, and see everything that is there. Eat this popcorn without making any noise. But I did manage to learn to be the movie watcher my parents and babysitters thought I already and simultaneously was or had the potential to be, and I have been that watcher all my life since. I can even remember having been that watcher the other day while yet another motion picture was spun out in front of my eyes, but now instead of popcorn, I had my decaf Starbucks. I am that watcher now as I write this book. Alfred Hitchcock's Roger O. Thornhill Cary Grant is an anticipatory follower too. There are virtually no analyses of his escapades in North by Northwest that do not somehow recognize this elemental fact, if not necessarily in these words, although relatively few of those who have written about the film find it especially interesting, being charmed instead by his predicament as the butt of a profound existential joke. Once Roger has been kidnapped at the plaza, however, our protagonist is a man who can learn to survive only from those who fail to acknowledge him as Roger O. Thornhill the person he supposes himself naturally, automatically, simply, merely, and wholeheartedly to be, persistently recognizing him instead as a person they believe him naturally, automatically, simply, merely, and wholeheartedly to be, George Kaplan, even though he insists that he is not Kaplan. And one of the lovely ironies of the film early on is that we tend to agree with him. His denials must be directed toward a small and powerful audience convinced that he is. He is therefore in trouble. And it is only through the aperture of Kaplan, by learning how to be that man, that he can possibly find safety when he is in their presence. In order to escape from his kidnappers and survive their malevolent attentions, he sets out on a journey of discovery, north-northwest, to find out just who George Kaplan is, learning at each stage in the process what his tormentors expect of him, without giving them evidence that he is learning it, or that they are his teachers. I should say here as well that the kidnappers are extremely nasty, if courteous types, engaged in serious business. Should they realize that they have captured the wrong man, i.e., that it is a mere Roger Thornhill who is desperately learning from them, they will kill him. While Kaplan, the individual they zealously seek and believe they have come upon, the man Roger steadfastly refuses to be, is worth keeping alive. Roger's pas de deux, as it were, with the invisible cipher Kaplan, I take as a central conundrum of this film. North by Northwest is a profoundly social film, by which I mean it reveals social structure and power, because the kidnapper's recognition of Thornhill as Kaplan in the Oak Bar at the Plaza Hotel is performed more or less under the gun. At issue in it are both personal influence and social control, thus vertical ascendancy. 
The gun at Roger's ribs will influence him to walk along with men who wish to redirect him against his will, since it is to a telephone in the lobby he is taking himself, not the mauve limousine parked outside at the curb. The kidnapping is brutality at its most elegant. Social power, in fact. A force that legitimates every assumption these men make and tilts the balance of probability away from the victim who can muster no force of his own. The power of the gunman is manifested in the scene through an astonishing directorial coup. The bellboy is circling the room with a call, paging Mr. George Kaplan. This is smooth and mannerly social behavior in the restricted bar of a glamorous New York hotel. Roger is at a table taking drinks with some business associates and has suddenly remembered that although a few minutes before outside on 59th Street, he had asked his secretary to call his mother at a certain telephone number, mother is in fact elsewhere. He urgently now wants to send a wire. A suave barfly, he turns to look for the bellboy and raises a hand to signal the exact moment the boy has put out the call for Kaplan. A call loud enough and musical enough to have caught our ears, but one Roger didn't detect, being uninterested in the space outside his little microecological preserve. He is not expecting to be paged here, and is preoccupied talking to gentlemen, one of whom happens to be hard of hearing. The deaf man raises a hand to his ear, diegetically scooping Roger's cocktail gibberish, but extra diegetically signaling us to pay attention to sounds in general. That is, sounds beyond the periphery of this table. That Roger is taken for Kaplan, literally, by the man who initiated the bellboy's page, is itself a social nicety, although not a nice nicety, since he made a signal and the signal was enthusiastically read. What more need ever be accomplished beyond making a sign that is read? that he did not intend to make the sign, is surely immaterial. For what is an intention to an audience but a sign of an intention? And he has made a sign. That a person can inadvertently signal, can possess an audience unwittingly, suggests that the power of identification is in the field characters inhabit, not in characters themselves. The bellboy, seeing the signal too, and being innocent, though dangerous, has no reason for thinking the man answering his call is anybody other than the George Kaplan he is calling. He directs Roger to the phone in the lobby, where the gunmen intercept him. This kidnapping scene, in truth, it does not seem like one until the action is well along, is a bold statement of the fragility of identification, since it is through an unintended temporal juxtaposition of signs, the hand in the air and the vocal call, that Roger innocently forsakes himself here and plunges into another man's life. If Hitchcock was intrigued all his life by the imbalance of consciousness and the power that enables human influence, we may not be surprised to find considerable attention to class, dominance, and social order in his dramatic settings of taken and mistaken identity. We can explore this film in terms of matters not being quite what they seem. A scene in the dining car of the 20th century limited, as Thornhill and Eve Kendall, even Marie Saint, first formally meet, is especially interesting in this regard. Roger is in flight from New York, incriminated as a murderer in a purely coincidental newspaper photograph. In short, a man who has been taken to really be what he only looks like he is, but on the front page, a fixing frame. Eve is ostensibly enjoying a business trip. I'm an industrial designer, says she. Not exactly lying, since industry is intense and devoted activity, and she's indeed engaged in design. Which industry she serves, we shall discover only later. Similarly true, and nothing but true, as far as ever we are positioned to discover while watching this film, is her self-revelation as being 26 and unmarried, although it is not, we may suspect soon, the whole truth. She is unmarried, but does not seem unattached. Yet she caps her statement with a definitive, now you know everything. Eventually, 
I believe, the viewer concludes that Eve's attachments to other men are really not real and that Roger does know everything, even if it will be some time before he sheds enough fear or cynicism to see this himself. What I wish to point out here, at any rate, is that dialogue that has a slightly fishy smell when we hear it is in fact completely straight, and therefore things are not what they seem. At any rate, Roger, very much attached to a cynical view, now consciously and purposefully adopts a pseudonym for the only time in the film, although he is not palpably endangered at this moment. Eve catches him in his deception, smoothly and imperturbably giving correction by insisting he is the person we have all along been recognizing. Not Jack Phillips of King B Electronics, but Roger O. Thornhill of Madison Avenue. Even though he would, under other circumstances, eagerly claim it for himself, most of his eager contribution to the Lester Townsend library scene is just such a claiming. The name Roger Thornhill is used in this circumstance as a label forced upon him by a person he is little afraid of. A name, a label, in alignment with which he is now forced to re-establish himself. Further, it is a name connected to an identity vulnerable to transformation by others, such as the headline and caption writers of the newspaper Eve is carrying. Not just false identities can be laid upon us, then. What we might call authentic ones can, too. And so it is that even in being ourselves, we may be compelled to do anticipatory following, orienting our activity toward others and taking clues from them as to how we should contrive to be. To some real extent, this taking of clues and reacting sensibly to the information that clues contain is the social life of which Roger Thornhill is such an adept. Roger's social life, embedded as it is in his career as an advertising executive, focuses on communication and therefore potential ambiguity, construction, and conceit. Most people, most of the time, are not involved professionally in the fabrication of illusion and make the assumption that the world should be interpreted at face value. This is precisely the assumption Roger typically capitalizes upon, to the same extent that the facile and disingenuous advertisements he concocts are taken as straightforward messages by consumers not in the know, messages to be attended to eagerly, the carefully edited reports in the daily newspaper. For instance, a headline story labeling Roger as a murderer are taken as straightforward accounts by the same credulous audience. Roger, however, is not one of these gullibles, but a man fully informed about the possibilities of ideological manipulation. He gets paid very well for producing it, and he is therefore dismayed, yet not at all shocked, to find the compromising photograph of himself as killer on the front page of Eve's paper, when he believes that in truth he killed nobody. Eve cannot yet be presumed by Roger to be in the same sort of show business. She must be taken as a woman who will tend to believe what she reads, so camouflage is necessary and also useful in the face of her prodding. That she doesn't take that newspaper any more seriously than he does is something Roger doesn't know yet. Regarding Roger's camouflage, one delicious irony of the film is that it is not a necessary prop for dealing with the arch-villain Van Damme, James Mason, since Van Damme's man did commit the murder of Townsend on Van Damme's instructions, and Van Damme therefore shares with Roger a knowledge above that in the popular press. More, like Roger, and like the Eve Roger hasn't really met yet, Van Damme does not typically lower himself to read the news in newspapers, and thus his utile fantasy that Roger is George Kaplan is not dissipated by the caption under that photograph definitively labeling the face as belonging to Roger O. Thornhill. In this layer of the tissue of the plot lies something of an essay on social class, since in general those persons like Van Damme and Thornhill who make news are in no need of populist organs to bring it to their attention. They tend to own those organs, and to shape the reporting. 
If, in this case, the newspaper is powerfully informative, leading the police to connect Roger with the murder knife, it is also low enough an organ to escape the snobbish eye of Van Damme, who won't trouble to think of Roger as Roger. Roger is not himself, neither real, nor authentic, nor whole. In fact, so long as he is identified only on a front page, a pulp too palpably digestible by the police and too far beneath the notice of Van Damme, his deep identity as a non-murderous non-Kaplan can be established only by a higher and more discreet power, the sort that endows the press with the ability to rename or at least reclassify people who get written about in news stories because it represents the class interests that own the press, not the readers who are manipulated by it. Hitchcock knew that for substantiating or at least regrounding a belief that Roger is who he says he is, rather than the person he very clearly seems to be to anyone looking at the pose in the photograph, that he is Roger the innocent advertising man, not Roger the killer, indeed that he is Roger, not George, it would be necessary to include an unimpeachable labeler, a mother, Jesse Royce Landis, with at least as much social clout as Van Damme or the New York Times, and a person for whom Roger can hardly be anybody else than what she has named him. It is no accident that Mrs. Thornhill emphasizes her maternity and seems to look down her nose at the world. Any other sort of mother would never manage to relieve us from the haunting worry that the dignified and erudite Van Damme might be correct, that somehow, without his knowing it, a completely believable eventuality given his blithe goofiness, Roger might be Kaplan in truth. And this is the first clue to the film's architecture. Once we have the vagaries of identification, we have the power of appearance. Once we have the power of appearance, we have the ability of the press, and of persons suitably placed to miscast people by misdisplaying them. As miscasting is one particular way of looking down, it is domination, and so once we have miscasting, we have the possibility of snobbery. To trump the snobbery of Van Damme, nothing will do but the greater and more authentic snobbery of a matron who would sniffle at even him. Mrs. Thornhill contributes to this film no other material weight and performs no function that could not be handled instead by a minor functionary. She must be here in order to give some grounding to Roger's identity. Without mother. He is absolutely at sea. He is surely at sea in the dining car with Eve. Eve puts him up tight, at least because she finds him stimulating and says so. Though it is hardly ostensible to us at this moment that Eve should imperil him, principally because, as moviegoers, we are prepared even eager for the show of romantic coupling these two are notably equipped to provide. Nevertheless, Roger is afraid, at least in posture. Honest women frighten me, he admits. Somehow they seem to put me at a disadvantage. The disadvantage Roger is talking about is sexual, presumably because he hasn't mentioned honest people, and nothing of his behavior seems to queer him. But whether or not Eve Kendall also constitutes a threat to his survival is a central issue of the plot more broadly, one that can hardly have been framed for him at this moment, not really a sexual matter at all. Here in the dining room, as he waits for his rainbow trout, he has no reason to shrink from her beyond the simple fact of her femininity as a kind of non-masculine otherness. If, as a mother's boy he is, and presumably long was, accustomed to being overprotected, dominated, and lovingly demeaned, he has also learned to manipulate people and situations successfully. So his skillfully rendered trepidation, his Jack Phillipsing, may be nothing other than a covert from which masterfully to take aim at this bird, his fear a kind of foreplay. Later, Hitchcock will give us to worry that Kendall really does threaten Thornhill, the Chicago station phone booth scene and later still to recognize that Thornhill threatens her, the cafeteria at Mount Rushmore. If we are not who we seem to be, if our genuine essence is inner and unknown, if others indeed cannot quite understand us, do we at least know ourselves? 
The game of hide-and-seek that proceeds from Roger's gambit at the dining car table is about secret apprenticeship, as Garfinkel called it, in the construction of identity, a dramatized follow-the-leader. Of this film, we might ask, who is being and who is merely apprenticing? Who experiences situations and who, while apparently experiencing, is only subtly responding to cues being given by people who do not imagine themselves to be giving cues? Where, therefore, is performance? And whose? End quote. At the beginning of this scene, Cavell notes, quote, Van Damme draws some theatrical curtains across proscenium-sized windows, shutting the world out and arranges for Thornhill to be killed, as if punishing him for acting. End quote. But what acting is Thornhill doing? The ad man, the son, the alcoholic, the spy. What difference do any of these labels make if he must play the part he is given from here on out? By the end of the film, is there any meaningful distinction between Roger Thornhill and George Kaplan? Mladen Dolar, Hitchcock's Objects Quote, Accidental encounters, as already pointed out, are essential for Hitchcock's universe. It is a universe governed by a malign spirit which makes a chance event to plunge a normal citizen into a nightmare, and it is the chance accident that reveals the structure into which the subject is implicated. The chance encounter basically takes the form of a joint between an element and an empty place, a void that was awaiting the subject like a trap. North by Northwest is the most obvious example. The name George Kaplan, a non-existent agent, an empty signifier, is the pitfall into which Roger Thornhill tumbles. He fills the empty space. End quote. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculty. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world the paragon of animals. And yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. No, no woman neither. Though by your smiling, you seem to say so. We enter minute 14, mid-sentence. So you see there is very little sense in maintaining this fiction that you're deceiving us any more than we're deceiving, deceiving you, you, Mr. Captain. Captain. Thornhill stares at him, the script says, for a long moment, helplessly frustrated. Thornhill. I don't suppose it would do any good to show your wallet full of identification cards, driver's license, things like that. that. As Thornhill speaks, Van Damme checks his watch and Leonard approaches. Second four, Angle and Leonard. Leonard. They They provide you with such good good ones. Thornhill looks to Leonard, then downward. Van Damme, still looking at his watch, says, It's It's getting getting late. I have guests. guests. He takes a breath and looks Thornhill in the eye. Do, Do you, you intend, intend to cooperate, cooperate with, with I'd like, us? I'd like a simple yes or no. Thornhill, completely exasperated. A simple no. For the simple reason I simply don't know what you're talking, talking about. about. Van Damme walks around Thornhill to the right. Thornhill watches him go. Second 25, Angle and Leonard as Van Damme passes him, heading for the door. Man turns to his secretary. Give Mr. Captain a drink, Leonard. In a script, he turns to Thornhill, but he simply goes to the door without turning around in the film. A pleasant, a pleasant journey, journey, sir. The man goes to the door, opens it, holds it open for a fraction. Valerian and Light enter. Valerian is Adam Williams. Light is Robert Ellenstein. Light holds his lit cigarette, strangely, and takes a drag, still holding it strangely, as they enter the room and Valerian closes the door behind them. 
Second 39, ankle on Thornhill, putting his wallet back into his inside jacket pocket. He pauses. We hear the door close. In second 40, we are on Leonard and Light and Valerian. The latter two simply wait by the door as Leonard heads to the right. Leonard. Scotch. Rye. Camera pans right as Leonard heads for the black cabinet built into the bookshelves to the right of the door. A matching black table sits in front of it with a large silver tray on top. Second 42, the angle changes, but not by much, and we are closer behind Leonard as he opens that cabinet. Leonard continued. Bourbon? Vodka? Inside the cabinet are many bottles on the lower shelf, many glasses on the shelf above. From left to right, the visible bottles. Shivas Regal blended scotch whiskey. Old Overholt straight rye whiskey. The strange bottle that will come into play in a moment. Smirnoff Vodka. And another bottle turned too far to make out the label. The strange bottle is especially strange because it seems to have two different labels, one on the front, one on the back. On the shelf, we can see a green, black, and white label. The label seems to say Cavanaugh Old Scotch. There is a Cavanaugh with a C, brand whiskey, but its typeface is different and it uses a darker green with yellow highlights. There's also a Cavanaugh with a K, brand Irish whiskey as well, but it uses a clearer bottle and a pale label, a different typeface. On the neck of this bottle is a tan rectangle with a red circle. This coloring matches the label on the other side of the bottle, which we will see as Leonard removes it from the cabinet in a moment. Angle on Thornhill. Thornhill. Nothing, thank you. I'll just take, take a, a quick, quick ride back, back to town. Leonard. Off screen. Well, oh, that, that has, has been arranged. Angle on Leonard. He reaches for that strange bottle with his right hand, then grabs a glass with his left. Leonard. But, but first, a libation. He turns the bottle as he holds it up, and we can see that the back of it has a tan label with a large red circle like the smaller label on its neck. This label is never clear enough to read. What it seems is simply that the production did not want to involve an actual brand of bourbon in what is about to happen. Leonard. Bourbon. He moves toward Thornhill with the bottle and glass held up. Second 53, angle on Thornhill as Leonard comes into frame from the right. Thornhill. You drink it. I've I've had had enough enough stimulation for one day. Leonard. Gently. It'll, it'll be, be easier, easier if you take this yourself. yourself. Otherwise, Otherwise, it will be necessary. Be necess- and we can only assume what it will be necessary to do as this minute ends. I've been your host for Minute 14, Professor Robert E.G. Black. If you'd like to hear more from me, check out Michael Myers' Minute, in which, so far, I looked at with the occasional guest John Carpenter's original Halloween one minute at a time. I still have plans to return to the franchise, hopefully very soon, with Halloween 2, two minutes at a time. You can find the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play or the main site HitchcockMinute.com. Find us on Facebook at The Manor of Washington's Nose or on Twitter at Hitchcock Minute. Join us here next time on the Hitchcock Minute.